Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Bitcoin has surged 20% to date in January. So if you put in money in Bitcoin last year, how much would you have in your little kitty right now? Is there a crypto bubble forming though? Is 2020 the year for Bitcoin? We're going to take a closer look at Bitcoin and that race that's hotting up in Singapore. The digital banking race. We know that 21 digital banking licenses have been received. What does this mean for you investors? But first, I have to start with the US-China trade deal seen as a pause in the trade war, is it really so many mixed signals? My guest joining us this morning is Arun Pai. He's Chief Crystal's Officer. He leads investments over at Crystal.ai. Arun, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I am doing well, even as I am knee-deep in this trade war phase one inked deal, all 95 pages of it. Help me out, Arun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's something that we've been talking about for, what, over a year now? And... We're just lucky that at least the first stage finally happened. Indeed. Uh, it is uh, the first <laughs> stage in, 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 as part of a longer negotiation. Um, so huge numbers first up, right? The shopping list from China, $200 billion, the shopping list that China has agreed to buy. The $200 billion shopping list from China includes agricultural products and energy exports. It's seen as a boon for farmers in the U.S., Broadly speaking, Arun, what do we have to understand of the U.S.-China trade deal? First steps, it's definitely a good first step, but we could see by the market reaction overnight, the markets were basically expecting this. If it did not happen, then there would have been a massive correction, but at least pen to paper, the first step has happened. Breaking down the numbers, China was buying something close to $24 billion worth of agricultural goods back in 2017 before the trade war started. What they've committed to is an increase of $12.5 billion this year and another increase of $19.5 billion in year two. As you rightly mentioned, this is a massive boost to U.S. farmers who are genuinely having a true purchaser of their goods as compared to the U.S. government just providing subsidies. So you would hope that the Midwest of the U.S., which is a massive voter base for Trump, be genuinely happy about this deal. It obviously depends on whether China finally executes it on it or not. But going where the things are going, the mid-year ele- with the year elections coming up in November, hopefully this will be a nice boost uh, to Trump's voter base. Now, on the other side, the U.S. has agreed to basically reduce tariffs from 15 to 7.5% mm. for only $120 billion worth of Chinese products. So you can see both parties are uh, inching closer to trying to get to the truth, but at the same time, they're holding their cards still very close to their chest. China, for example, has not dropped any tariffs on U.S. uh, products, nor has the U.S. given any concessions to uh, the tech behemoth in China, Huawei. These were major contentious issues. Now, including that, one would hope that if this is, you know, now that it's signed, Trump is hopefully going to be going to China in the near future, he claims, and they can start discussing the more bigger concrete issues of IP protection, the government in China providing way too much state support to its local industries, and obviously Huawei. 
I think the next big run-up in the market, if it ever happens, is only going to, going to be once these issues are resolved. And honestly, I think that's going to be a much more difficult uphill task than what's happened so far. Okay, I want to back up a little to tariffs. Help me make sense because it looks like mixed signals to me. The U.S. dropping plans to extend tariffs to an additional $160 billion worth of Chinese imports. So dropping those plans, cutting in half to 7.5% U.S. tariffs on another $110 billion of Chinese goods. But the U.S. still maintaining tariffs on $360 billion worth of Chinese imports. So, you know, are we scaling back tariffs or... Are we still keeping tariffs as a major instrument of leverage? Oh, definitely the latter. I mean, Trump is trying to play this to the best of his abilities, and they do hold uh, the power card over here because at the end of the day, the U.S. is purchasing stuff from China. Until they can concretely see China upholding its end of the bargain and enabling a lot more agricultural purchase first, because that's the lowest hanging fruit that Trump needs, to win the November elections. So only as and when they keep seeing that happen will presumably tariffs keep dropping. Now, the U.S. is obviously doing like some smart things, right? Like if you look at the Treasury Department, they announced just a couple of days before this deal got signed that the Chinese yuan is not in the list of being a currency manipulator. That was a big step forward for the U.S. to actually extend its olive branch and tell China that, look, we are in this to try and get a deal done. Mm. Here you go. Now, China reciprocated, obviously, the agricultural purchase. Hopefully, things go according to plan. More agricultural goods are bought, and you will see a slow step down in the U.S. reducing tariffs. But make no mistake, until the U.S. eventually gets what it wants, which is going to be extremely difficult in terms of Chinese government stopping state support to its local industries, as well as the IP protection issue, until that point of time, I do not think the tariffs will go completely away because that is the one way that Trump can try to ensure that China keeps coming back to the uh, discussion table. Right, right. Well, picking up on that point of Washington dropping China's currency manipulator label, reversing its decision, um, that was big news released by the U.S. Treasury Department this week. Arun, how significant is the dropping of this label really? And do you think it's helped ease tensions between the two countries in a big way? There were never any sort of penalties associated with that label to begin with. Exactly, Michelle. So it, it's definitely very symbolic in nature. But at the same time, I think it definitely facilitated the trade deal to actually get signed. Not to say that it would not have gotten signed if they didn't do this, but at least it was a nice gesture on the part of the U.S., which the Chinese took very favorably. And, you know, maybe a couple of issues in that 90-page document uh, were given as concessions by China that, you know what, you guys have done this for us. We are happy to try and repay the favor. In terms of the actual market movements, uh, it was, while it was a little bit unexpected, as you rightly mentioned, it's really, it, because there were no penalties attached to it, it really didn't make much of a difference. Uh, CN, you know, the Chinese yuan is appreciated, uh, to the highest level since about July of last year, uh, a decent, uh, far away amount from the big 7.0 handle. I think the next big move in Chinese yuan is going to be very highly dependent on the way the Chinese local economy is growing, or I should say a slowdown. And of course, uh, what happens to uh, the second tranche of a trade uh, truce?
I am speaking with Arun Pai, one of my favorite investors to speak with. He leads investment at Crystal.ai. All right, Arun, let's change tack a little and talk about Singapore's digital banking race. It seems everyone, including the super apps, everyone seems to want my money. Only five licenses. (laughs) (laughs) Only five licenses up for grabs. What is it going to take to win this digital race and what's the prize? Okay, let's look at it. Let's break it down. The MAS has announced it's received 21 digital banking licenses, up to five to be issued in June this year. Uh, There's a solo bid by Shopee Perrin C, and then nine publicly known applicants consists of consortiums. Their members include e-commerce firms, technology. So in in the bag is Grab. I mean, they've thrown their hats in the race. Grab, Singtel, Razor Youth Bank, a group comprising IFAS, Yilion, Hyundai Group. Arun, what is it going to take, do you think, for the winner to triumph in Singapore's digital banking race? Obviously, that's an extremely difficult question to answer. So thank you for putting me on the spot over there. That being said, I think what MAS has basically publicly announced, and they've done a fantastic job of getting, I would say, the right quote-unquote number of applicants for their five licenses, is by ensuring the base capital requirement or the amount of money that either a company or these consortiums need Mm. to put forward is reasonably high enough that it does not attract a whole bunch of random companies. So the base capital requirements for the wholesale licenses is a little bit lower in terms of like 100 to $150 million, whereas the two full licenses are substantially higher at close to over a billion dollars of regulatory capital. Now, basically what MAS wanted is not just the capital requirements, but they also need to showcase a plan for sustainable profitability. Mm. Something that, as we've discussed about in the past, uh, a typical startup uh, truly does not care about because they're just in this game to try and raise a lot more venture capital money. Now, what MAS has basically done is gotten 21 applications for their uh, five licenses, and they've tried to achieve this by ensuring that, say, a tech company that has been able to grasp big data in a much better manner than traditional banking applicants can connect with a, say, a payment lending company, uh, a money remittance company. They can form a consortium, which in a combined basis can ideally provide a much better service to us, the consumers, Mm. and to SMEs who are potentially not as targeted for the three big banks in Singapore. Because it is, a, it is an extremely expensive proposition and it's extremely difficult to understand the credit risks of very small companies, especially if you do not have robust models. What it means for Singapore in general, like uh, consumers like us and SMEs, it's obviously a big positive. We will now have you know another five other banks uh, trying to earn our respect and earn our dollars basically Mm -hmm. in a very smooth UX, UI or like the the customer journey is going to be extremely smooth. Mm -hmm. Imagine you going onto like an Amazon or a Lazada ordering something. Mm -hmm. It's like three clicks and you're done, right? Now you compare that to a bank, it's a little bit more complicated. Yes. I mean, if somebody would just pick up the phone, that would be great. (laughs) That would be great indeed. Or you have an extremely smooth digital journey for which you don't even need to, you know, talk to anyone. Yes. 
Now, that being said, though, uh, I'm not sure when is the last time you went to a bank, Michelle, but I bank with DBS. And, I'm, you know, I've heard from friends regarding OCBC and UOB. It's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember the last time I went to a bank branch right. because everything is done through the app right now. Singapore, we are lucky enough to be in a place that uh, the incumbents, the three main banks, did not rest easy and they kept trying to digitize, knowing fully well that there will be a lot of competitors coming into the market. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of uh, the actual effect on the three bank stocks, at least, I do not think it will be that much of an issue. They've got an extremely solid, the trenches are definitely extremely deep in the Singapore market. And I do not see these new five licensed digital banks being able to disrupt that moat. But that being said, as a consumer, it's obviously more choices, the better for us. But in but in the flip side, I think for the five licenses, this gives them a massive opportunity to start branching out from Singapore into countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, etc. Where millions are underbanked. Where millions are truly like tens and hundreds of millions are underbanked. Mm. And SMEs are starved for capital. Uh, will it be easy for them to do that? Again, I'm not so sure because the regulation in each of these countries is extremely strong. If you remember a bunch of years ago, DBS Bank was trying to get it, you know, expand into Indonesia because of the metrics in Indonesia for banks was extremely, well, it was really good for a shareholder. The net interest margin was the highest in the region. So DBS was looking to acquire a bank over there, but the central bank said, we don't want to do that because this is our local national bank. We, one would hope that for the betterment of consumers, especially in these surrounding developing region and developing countries, mm-hmm. one would hope that the central banks are going to be as flexible as MAS mm-hmm. and try and take try and learn from the regulator over here to ensure that their economies can grow rapidly, which will obviously help Singapore because we are like the central hub of the entire region. So really, you can see these fintech licenses as a means of anchoring a financial technology firms' ecosystems at a very early stage of their development. Most definitely. Fantastic. We're talking with Arun Pai and we're digesting all the news that investors need to understand this morning. Arun Pai is from Crystal.ai, where he's chief crystal officer and leads investment. Okay, Bitcoin has surged 20% to date in January. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Is 2020 the year for Bitcoin, Arun? I don't think any year should be the year for Bitcoin. (laughs) But let's be honest, right? There have been investment manias or bubbles that have been going on since the 1600s. Like, just because a certain number of people thought that tulips that were grown in the Netherlands were suddenly worth, in today's terms, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, they could convince the person next to them to buy it off of them at a higher price. This is the way human nature has been the same for the past 400 years. There will always be mania, there will always be bubbles. My personal view is, Bitcoin falls squarely under that category. All it takes is local governments to be concerned that this anonymous way of transferring money might lead to, and sadly it has been leading to, uh, a lot of funding of terrorism or in the dark web, like all sorts of other non-kosher activities. So that's my personal take on Bitcoin. Can you make a lot of money out of it? Yes, sure. But can you lose your shirt? Absolutely, because 
what is the true value of a Bitcoin. The flip side, though, is what it has enabled through this through everyone talking about Bitcoin so extensively mm. is the underlying blockchain technology. Yes. And that is something that can truly and has been disrupting the logistics uh, businesses, uh, transferring of goods, uh, a whole host of industries. So I think the the good side effect of Bitcoin rallying and like showing up in media a lot more is that people will be a lot more focused on how blockchain technology is evolving. Mm-hmm. In terms of Bitcoin itself as an asset class or an investment vehicle, I would genuinely ask or request everyone who's listening in to be extremely cautious. Uh, you know, try and take as much money as you can off the table whenever you can. And uh, please don't be the last one holding the bag when uh, this thing eventually does collapse. Wise words. I see you haven't changed your stance on Bitcoin from all of last year that we've talked. (laughs) Sadly not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a great day. Always terrific talking to you, Arun. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. You too. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.